the world has to aim high, right? We have to set targets that we are not sure we can achieve because otherwise the ambition's not high enough. We have to feel the urgency of our fellow citizens on this planet who are living in deprivation and poverty. We have to feel that it's an urgent need to move them out of that state and that it's an urgent need to solve the climate crisis and adjust to it. Hello, and welcome to Impact Adventures, our podcast about all things sustainable investing and responsible business. Hey, Steve. Hello. If you're new to our pod, welcome. We explore stories of change makers working in finance and business to improve the world. We believe that with education and intentionality, we can shift the way the capital markets work so that they benefit all stakeholders and not just shareholders. This is our SDG season where we're looking in-depth at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. We tackle one goal each episode. Feel free to peruse our previous episodes or just find a topic that aligns with your values or for advisors, those of your clients. Liz, this is our last SDG episode. We're on number 17. It's hard to believe, eh? It went so fast, but I'm really excited that we're rounding out this season sort of how we started it, by talking with Esther Pan Sloan from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. She was a part of helping to create the SDGs, as well as working now with the UN. Absolutely sending it. We love chatting with Esther, and hopefully you get as much out of her chats as we do. Profit. Make that chart go up. Purpose. To educate and inspire. All right, let's go. SDG number 17, Partnerships for the Goals. This goal can feel a bit amoebus at first blush, more like a hope than a tangible thing to address. However, digging into it, we see that it's quite the opposite. This goal actually has more targets than any other, and so we are not going to list them all here. Not to mention they are wordy, just to be honest. The goal boils down to the idea that the sustainable development goals will not be successful without global participation. Developed countries are called upon to support, through various financial means, developing and the least developed countries. In the initial episode where we spoke to Esther about why the SDGs were created and some of the challenges that the writers faced, she mentioned that one of the things to come out of the set of previous goals, called the Millennium Development Goals, was the importance of including all nations in setting global priorities and the value of incorporating stakeholders like businesses to help achieve the goals. We're going to cover how that works with Esther and how the private sector can get involved as well. And who better to discuss global partnerships than the UNCDF's Head of Partnerships and Policy? Hi, Esther. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Liz and Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we dive into SDG number 17, it's been a little over four months since we had our first conversation. I wondered if you have any news or updates to report as far as SDG work goes. I'm afraid much of the updates or many of the updates are not so positive. Uh, in the last four months, we've seen the continuation of the economic impact of the COVID crisis, particularly in emerging markets. We've seen the continued decline of foreign direct investment, which these markets really rely on. We've seen the increased climate vulnerability of small island developing states and other least developed countries that are our clients, but rich countries as well. We've seen floods and storms and fires everywhere from California to Texas to Germany. So I think 
if anyone did doubt the impact of climate change and the necessity of making rapid decarbonization transition investments, I hope the last four months have shown that there's nowhere to escape from the impacts of climate change and the increasing variability in extreme weather events. It will hit all of us at one time or another. And as a global community, we have to adapt. So those are the updates. I wish they could be a bit, a little bit more positive, but um, up until now, it's been some tough, a tough, a couple of tough years for our emerging markets. Well, and I feel like you know the first sixteen episodes that we just went through really laid out how challenging this is. So I guess if there were lots of successes in the past four months, it. Uh, would seem off. So thank you for the update. And let's dive into SDG number 17. Can you tell us what the purpose is really of this goal? Partnerships for the Goals, uh, SDG 17, is really a spin on what is always in UN development agreements, which is essentially, how are we going to pay for this and where will the money come from? So traditionally, when UN development agreements were negotiated, there was an expectation that wealthy countries would pay for them to support the development of poorer countries. And that's really the premise underlying the UN development system, the multilateral aid system, which looks to developed countries, uh, OEC donor assistance countries or other groups of wealthy countries to provide the funding required for uh, poor countries to make the investments and transitions they need to lift themselves out of poverty. Partnerships for the Goals is really a new way of looking at this debate, which is because the SDGs are more broadly inclusive than any previous UN development agenda, because they treat stakeholders like NGOs, academics, youth groups, business, the private sector, investors, because they treat those actors as active participants in achievement of the SDGs, the old way of looking at rich countries to pay poor countries to fund development was not only insufficient, but it won't be enough moving forward. So Partnerships for the Goals was a way to say, how do we bring in more actors to both participate in the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals and help pay for it? So that's why you see in the SDGs, for the first time, the United Nations and member states looking towards actors like the private sector and the financial industry and the investment industry for action on things like climate change. So you've seen a lot of progress on uh, t- the task force on climate-related disclosures, for example, and methodologies and indicators for measuring the climate impact in portfolios and investments and tracking carbon emissions of corporations that you might own in your portfolios. That's been a tremendous amount of movement, and we should have listed this under the positive news. As money is moving towards more sustainable development, responsible investing, impact investing, environmental social governance aware investing, as money is moving into this category more broadly, the indicators and the regulations around these areas are getting stricter. And we're seeing already, even in the last four or five years, a vehicle that calls itself an impact vehicle and takes your money has to meet more rigorous requirements every year. The SEC and especially the European regulators are being much more much tougher on financial entities that are claiming to have a positive impact with their investments. So I think that's one uh, really tangible benefit of this idea of partnership for the goals is that the money required to achieve the sustainable development goals will not come 
primarily from governments. It won't even mostly come from governments. It will mostly come from the trillions of dollars of private sector flows from pension funds, investments, foreign direct investments, remittances. That flow of finance around the world is what will ultimately pay for the SDGs. Excellent. Uh, I love that answer. I think it's fascinating. And it's such a simple way to think about a goal that can feel, I think, less tangible than many of the other goals. You think climate action. Boy, I know what that is. Partnerships for the goals. Hmm. What is that? Hmm, I'm not quite so sure. So thank you for that. That's great. Um, we definitely want to dive into a little bit of the private sector a little bit later. But first of all, how has the COVID pandemic, uh, which has interrupted so many, so much progress towards the other goals, how has that affected partnership efforts? It's had, I'd say, a similarly depressing impact on partnerships efforts where official development assistance, which is kind of the root of all this, it won't be, it won't be what achieves the SDGs, but it's definitely required to help achieve the SDGs. That comes out of government tax um, receipts and every economy felt impacts from COVID. So the developed countries that are the major aid donors saw their overall uh, GDPs decrease that means the one, um, the ones that have targets against their GDPs for their aid giving, that number decreased, and the ones that don't have targets, then their voluntary giving also necessarily decreased as the, as they had to spend more on their own country stimulus and COVID response. So, the pool of official development assistance shrank, the need grew. And in emerging markets, we saw that COVID had terrible impacts on things like foreign direct investment. Uh, in parts of Africa, it was down as much as 40% last year. And in all sorts of hard currency flows. So remittances, um, you know, other types of uh, transactions that these countries really rely on, tourism revenues, for example, those all dropped. So at the time when the need grew and the global economic condition worsened, the money coming in shrank. So we've seen that COVID has had a really devastating impact on emerging markets, particularly the least developed countries. And it's it's shrunk in the pool available for assistance. On the other hand, in terms of philanthropy and charitable giving, we saw that COVID really made a lot of donors pay attention because they could see that now there was a massive need that they could address. So we did see some increases in giving for hunger and for job stabilization and stability, but the overall charitable giving, both at a national level and um, at individual citizen levels, towards achievement of the SDGs uh, declined. Have you seen any evidence that, like in the, philanth- uh, the, the philanthropic space, COVID made people pay attention to it and maybe give more? Have you seen anything there in, uh, I guess, what you might call like impact investing on, on maybe the smaller scale, not on the governmental level, um, or, or, or even ESG? You know, we've seen a pretty tremendous rise in ESG investment uh, on the retail space. Um, do you think that that had an effect? We have seen increases in interest and awareness from philanthropists about impact investing. Uh, there's a lot of demand for information about it. I think some investors and philanthropists are moving their money 
towards more impactful portfolios. We know there's tremendous demand from particularly female and younger investors about having portfolio of, portfolios of investments that are aligned with their values. I'd say there's still some hesitation and um, there's still an attitude from both registered investment advisors and some maybe older or more traditional investors that these areas are not yet proven, that they're waiting for more data, that they don't want to give up, say, utilities or fossil fuels because that's an asset class they don't want to miss gains on. So you see really the strongest conviction from young people and I'd say uh, female investors where they say, I want no gas, no guns, no weapons of any kind. I don't want tobacco, you know, take them out of my portfolio. And then um, in addition to the negative screens, they're saying on a positive impact, I want to invest in women-led businesses or minority-owned businesses or something you know, in my local community for job creation or, or poverty eradication. We're seeing a lot of um, noise and movement about that. I'm not sure we've seen as much uh, in the financial flows, but it is true that the overall amount of assets under management in ESG and impact-linked strategies keeps growing every year. You know, before we get any further, can you just define a few terms and, and acronyms for us, namely ODA, FDI, and remittances? Sure. What exactly are those things and why do we keep hear about, hear about them in relation to SGG 17? Of course. And I'm sorry about the jargon. So ODA is official development assistance. That's tax money from a wealthy country that goes to a poor country to help them achieve their uh, development goals. So official development assistance is the uh, giving from one government to another. FDI is foreign direct investment. So that would be private sector money going to a business or an infrastructure investment in another country. And remittances are money going from the citizen of a country who lives outside that country back to his or her home country. And uh, the remittances have their own uh, target in the, in the Sustainable Development Goals because they're such an important source of income, especially for poor families. So an enormous percent of the day-to-day living costs of poor families in many countries around the world is covered by money that their relatives send home from going to another country and working. So that's what uh, remittances are. And Esther, could we go back to talking about the development money? And could you explain why it's so important for developing nations in this kind of race to achieve the SDGs? Sure. So Development finance is a really critical source of budget support for poor countries, especially the poorest countries. They rely quite a lot on official development assistance to make their budget numbers. So say they need $100 to provide sanitation and water and food and security to their people, they themselves can collect only, say, $40. So unless they get money from wealthy countries, they cannot provide those services. So that means there's no electricity, there's no garbage collection, there's maybe no wastewater collection, there's no road. You know, like at every level, because these governments are poor, because these countries are poor, they lack the resources required to make the investments to help them be less poor. So the reliance on official development assistance is, you know, some countries are so poor that without support from the outside, they can't, they are very limited in what they're able to provide to their citizens. And that's why it's such an important piece of finance. Um, in partnership for the goals, the kind of the flip side of development assistance is always the the demand or the request from developed countries that poor countries need to 
be more efficient at tax collection, at preventing uh, money from going overseas, because we know in many poor countries, a tremendous amount of money is stolen and then just shipped overseas. So donors, understandably, don't want to see their tax dollars going into a system that's not honest or effective. The call from poorer countries is usually that official development assistance needs to stay consistent or increase. And the call from donors is that recipient countries need to reform their tax collection systems, their justice systems, their legal systems, so that the money that it's given can be used more effectively. I see. But even in addition to funds, are there other things that developing countries need? And I guess I'm thinking of things like technology. Absolutely. So another um, constant request from developing countries is access to technological resources. So there are tremendous advances in developed countries that we enjoy that are not available to citizens of poor countries, and the governments would like those things to be available to their people, like medical machinery that can save someone's life, or vaccines, or, you know, a range of uh, technology. And the barrier there is intellectual property rights. I believe we talked about that on a, on a previous podcast, where um, many of these advances are developed in wealthier countries, and the intellectual property rights are held there. Many poor countries argue that intellectual property rights should not be applied on things like life-saving drugs, or very advanced medical machinery, or drought-resistant wheat or uh, technology like that that has a clear humanitarian or social purpose because their people need it. And, um, you know, there are strong arguments on both sides, but uh, technology, access to technology is, is a consistent request from developing countries. Another request is capacity. And um, we've discussed this before as well, that in many poor countries, there's a lack of capacity for say, lawyers to negotiate uh, sophisticated mining agreements. So then the country gets a terrible agreement and the company comes in and takes all the money. Or um, census demographers. So it's very difficult to count all their rural populations and they're maybe not sure how many young girls they have or how many poor people they have or how many um, rural people live in a certain area because they migrate and that they're not always in the same place. So capacity is at every level, right? Some poor countries have one doctor for 100,000 people and uh, one hospital for a million people, you know? So um, the, the countries that we're talking about that UNCDF serves, especially the poorest countries, the per capita income is $1,000 per person, and that's in a year. So with that income level, there's so much that you are not able to access or provide. So essentially, you know, the rich world has all of this ability to do things and make things happen, develop things. And so poor countries are saying, please share it because our people need it. That's interesting. So it's it's about so much more than just uh, funds and finance. Absolutely. What's the, what do you think the outlook is under the Biden administration for the next couple of years, as far as the United States uh, giving commitments, uh, our own ODAs? It's interesting because this issue is not as partisan as you would think. So the United States is a pretty consistent aid giver. Where you see a real difference is in funding for uh, women's reproductive health and rights. That changes quite a lot from one administration to another. But otherwise, the U.S. is very consistent about what it gives to the U.N. development system and the multilateral system. 
um, as a result of playing a leadership role in those systems over many, many years. I think there is not in the United States broad-based support for development assistance, as there is in some European countries. I think many Americans think that America gives, say, 50% of its income or a quarter of its income to poor countries and something less than 1%. It's significantly less than 1%. So it's uh, it's a large amount of cash, but relative to how much we have and how much we make, it's not significant at all. And many smaller countries are much more generous than we are by proportion of their total income. So uh, I think that the constituency for foreign assistance and for aid giving, especially through systems like the United Nations, is strong, but it's not very numerous in the United States. The people who care about these issues are um, not the majority. So I'd say the support tends to be fairly consistent from one administration to another. Do you think that the U.S., I mean, you mentioned that it's it's right now it's less than 1%. and I guess I feel like it doesn't come up, I would say, in kind of mainstream news headlines very often, maybe every once in a while around a political cycle or maybe a State of the Union address where a president is going to promise, oh, we're going to give X amount to, you know, a certain country or a group of countries around some issue. And it becomes kind of, it becomes an issue for a little bit, but it just doesn't seem to be something that's in the mainstream. Do you think that the U.S. should and can give more? Absolutely. I absolutely think the U.S. can give more. Um, I'm trying to find the statistic for what percentage of GDP it is. I think we're around uh, 0.2%, the United States. Uh, The country that gives the most is Luxembourg, which gives 1.05% in foreign aid as a percentage of gross national income. And there's a United Nations target of 0.7%, which the United States has not signed on to. But Norway is at 1.02%. Sweden is at 0.99%. Denmark is 0.71%. U.S. is somewhere in the low twos. I can't find the exact figure right now. Um, So, yes, I think every rich country can afford to give more. I think every rich person can afford to give more, right? When you look at the, the volume and the depth of the need in the world's Everyone who has enough to eat has enough to share with somebody else. Then you get into a question of what is the most effective way to give your money, right? I mean, foreign assistance is uh, development assistance from one country to another. Governments choose how they give it. And the United States, it's very skewed towards national security policy and other, uh, other policy priorities. So some of our biggest recipients of aid, for example, Iraq or Pakistan, are not the poorest countries there. We're get, Israel gets a lot of assistance from the United States. Um, those are not driven by uh, pure need. You know, we're not giving the most money to the poorest countries. So every country has its own priorities for its aid giving, just like every individual has their own priorities for their charitable giving. I would never say to another person, you should give X amount or you should give more or less. But I would say that most of us who enjoy a comfortable standard of living and security and enough food and water, have enough to share with somebody who doesn't enjoy those privileges. Would you be able to walk us through the actual process briefly, maybe with an example of how the money gets from country A to country B and what that country might do with it? I'll give two examples. One would be bilateral aid assistance. That's one country to another. And the second is multilateral assistance, which is one country through a big entity like like the UN to 
the recipient country. So bilateral assistance is the donor country gives money to the government of the poor country or the recipient country, and it's either earmarked or non-earmarked. More of the time now, uh, increasingly donor countries are giving earmarked funding, which means I am giving you money to fight violent extremism in this area of your northern plains. Unearmarked would be I am giving you money to help you, government of X country, and you can do what you want with it. There's very little bilateral assistance that's unearmarked for you know understandable reasons. So most of the funding is earmarked. Unfortunately, it's not earmarked necessarily to the needs of the recipient country. It's most often earmarked by the political priorities of the donor country. So development assistance has fashions and fads the way fashion has fads. So one year, people will be very concerned about violent extremism. Then in another year, they'll be very concerned about uh, violence against women or um, sexual uh, abuse or combating uh, flows of finance out of the country. And the aid money reflects those political concerns. So it changes. So I'd say, generally speaking, most countries have buckets or pockets of funding that will be for gender, for climate, for, you know, economic development. But within those buckets, you know, maybe one year in climate, it's oceans, which is the priority. And then the next year, uh, deforestation is a priority or something like that. So the money moves and then when it when it gets to the recipient country, they can only use it for the subject for which it was earmarked, which makes things a little tricky. Because if you're the recipient country, maybe your top environmental priority is oceans or forests or, or you know, mangrove uh, areas. Maybe it's none of those things, but that's what you're getting money for. So, um, you know, recipient countries have to spend the money in the way that it is given, but the priority uh, theme for the funding may not reflect their particular needs. So that would be bilateral assistance. Um, in many ways, I, I would say that's a much more direct way of giving because it's country to country. And then the donor country is giving it through their embassy in the recipient country. So they have people on the ground who are seeing what's needed. They re- react, they work with the government, they're reflecting you know, um, facts and, and situations on the ground. So that money is uh, usually quite targeted. Money through the UN development system or the multilateral development system is uh, goes through a, a much more winding path. So there are something like 34 aid agencies in the United Nations only, and many of them focus on areas like women and children or health and hunger. So if you're a donor country and you have a priority to um, feed, feed pe- poor people, eradicate hunger, you would give maybe to the World Food Program. If your priority is educating children, you would give to UNICEF. If your priority is sexual reproductive health of women, you would give to UNFPA. My own agency, UNCDF, focuses on economic development in the poorest countries. So if you as a donor care about the poorest countries and you want to see the private sector grow, you would give to us. But you wouldn't give to us for food food aid to refugees, for example. We don't do that. So there's already a differentiation of who gets the money and uses it for what thematic purpose then within the agencies, they have specific focuses and targets. And so the money then would go from the donor country to one of these agencies that has a special focus. It could be earmarked or unearmarked. If it's unearmarked, which means uh, we call that core funding, it goes to the WFP to fight hunger. And the WFP, the World Food Program, decides how they will use it to fight hunger. If it's earmarked, it will go to 
buy grain for women in the Sahel, or it depends on the level of the earmarking. So it can get quite specific. Um, so depending on the path that it takes, either earmarked or not, the money could end up in a very specific program, buying a very specific commodity in a specific country, or it could go generally to serve the mandate of that agency. So it could go to salaries or benefits of staff. It could go to developing new strategic priorities or issue areas, or it could go to the uh, area that's most in need that donors have not specifically given to. So unearmarked money is very useful for aid agencies because then they can put it where it's most needed, whereas uh, donors you know, see needs and respond to them. But often by the time the agencies receive that development assistance, the, the area of greatest need has moved somewhere else. So if you wait for donors to give to you for a specific region, A, the money may never come, or it may come so late that it doesn't uh, do as much to help that reason, region as it could. Are there ways to make the system more efficient so that some of these earmarked dollars can line up more with recipient needs? That's a great question. And I'd say that's one the system has been thinking about for a long time. Uh, a couple of the solutions to exactly that problem are trust funds, where the UN will set up a generalized trust fund that says, this is an emergency response fund. Countries can donate to it, and we will use the money to help refugees immediately, no matter where they are, or um, feed people, or deal with whatever situation is happening in the world. So that's one response. Another is a trust fund that will go uh, to an office in the UN that manages these funds that says, this is a trust fund for, say, hunger. And then UN agencies will apply to say, this is how we'll work on hunger, and then the trust fund distributes it. So it's thematically earmarked, but then uh, the agencies have a little bit more control in how the money is actually applied to solve the problem. But I'd say it's it's a it's a flaw in the system, right? The donor has the right to put strings on their money, and many times the strings that they attach to the funding do not match what the actual needs are, or the needs are so great that the donor funding, even if it is aligned, is not enough to solve the problem. It almost feels like part part of it is almost a, a, a public messaging issue, where if let's just use the U.S. for example. If the general population of the U.S. had a better idea of some of the very specific needs of recipient countries, there might be some political pressure to do something about it instead of just this general kind of, oh, yeah, we'll donate a little bit. That's great. You know, good for us. And I think also, just to jump in there, Steve, I think if the, the U.S. public or the public in wealthy countries had a more concrete appreciation of what it means to be that poor there would be more demand for giving, right? I think most citizens of wealthy nations have not traveled to a country where there's real poverty, real poverty, where people have no running water, no electricity, you know, many, um, many nights go to bed hungry. The children have no shoes or one pair of shoes where the family can't get together $10 to pay school fees so their, their kids have to stay home. Like that kind of poverty is really alien to many uh, citizens of the developed world. And I think if they, you know, if they spent some time, if they visited a country like that, or they spent maybe one day living like a person in the bottom 90 percentile of income, they would maybe be more empathetic to what the needs are and how, 
you don't need really much to make that person's life better. You might not solve their problem. You might not lift them out of poverty, but you can make their life better in a small way. You could give them access to a solar panel so that their kids can study. You can give them a little bit of money to pay the school fees. You can give them a digital banking account so that on their phone, they can save extra money when they have it and they'll have money for the school fees when they're due in June. So there are lots of small interventions you can make to make you know, a poor person's life easier, you can also make it a lot easier for them to be able to earn their own money. And so I think that's the um, the positive aspect of it is if people realized how big a difference they could make with not much money or effort, hopefully more people would do it. Uh, we better beat the drum for that then. I'm glad you brought that up. How does the private sector fit into all of this? So the private sector is a tremendous partner to the SDGs. Uh, we've discussed before how this is the first development agenda to really look at the private sector as an actor, as a partner, as a key stakeholder in achieving these key development targets. And I think that's part of the realization on, on the part of the UN, on the part of member states, that these ambitious development goals cannot be achieved without private sector involvement and investment. There just is not enough public money and there's not enough capacity. So when you talk about the newest inventions, the most creative tech apps, the most exciting device developments, those are coming out of the private sector. You know, it's not coming out of government. So when you think about who has the tools, the capacity, the speed, the implementation pressure uh, to really make the biggest difference on some of the big issues of our time, you know, adapting to climate change, moving to a net zero economy. It's really the private sector that will drive that progress. And so without the private sector's full engagement, none of these targets will be achieved. So that's why they're so important. How do you think we can get the private sector more engaged? Well, I think there's been a tremendous and very encouraging boom in social businesses. So the idea that you can start a for-profit business that achieves a social, environmental, or um, other beneficial impact. So for example, solar panels. You can make money generating energy using solar panels, but that also provides clean and non-polluting energy to the poor. So a solar panel business, a clean cook stove business, you know, anything that a clean water pump business that's um, powered by solar energy, which is uh, the the business of a company UNCDF recently invested in in Kenya. So that's a social enterprise, right? They're being run as a business. They're for profit. If they don't earn money and keep their customers happy, they'll go out of business. But they have a tremendous development and social impact with their work as part of their business model, not as part of the corporate giving that accompanies their profits. So I think the idea of rethinking capitalism and reimagining business, which is very animating for especially young entrepreneurs, young investors, this idea that you can take the tools of capitalism, you know, capitalism, which is so efficient and effective at allocating resources, driving innovation, bringing new products to market, serving customers, you know, it's the most efficient system that exists for those purposes. But if you could broaden the focus a bit and say the purpose of capitalism is not only to earn a profit, but also to have a positive economic or social or environmental benefit, then you have a new way of doing business. And you have a way of doing business that's not extractionary or um, exploitative of either the planet or workers. 
And if you keep the strengths of capitalism, where you have the rigor and the um, accountability required to run a business and the demand to serve customers with with the best product, but then you put in some of these other concerns, then you have a very powerful and compelling model for how do we all move towards a new vision of how the private sector works to help achieve the sustainable development goals. Esther, how much of the UN CDF's work is actually funding these social enterprises or for-profit businesses that have a social component? Quite a bit. So we have made uh, close to 30 loans and guarantees in seven least developed countries to small and medium enterprises that have both a sustainable development uh, impact with their work and financial viability. And we are moving those companies through a process where once we have nurtured them with grant funding and technical assistance, we move them to our partner for-profit uh, investment fund called the Build Fund, run by Bamboo Capital Partners out of Switzerland, to receive follow-on finance. So we started this work in 2018. You know, 27 or 28 loans is not enough; is not a lot, but it's um, building um, the model where we're trying to demonstrate to investors, both in and outside of least developed countries, that investing in these companies is both profitable and has a development impact. And, you know, what we heard for years was there's no pipeline in these countries. I I have money, I want to invest, but there's nothing for me to invest in. That's only partly true. There's nothing that meets, you know, say, standards of VCs uh, from New York or London to invest in in these countries, maybe at the moment, but with some development support, some help, some uh, nurturing, those companies can quickly become very investable by fully commercial finance. So we find that giving entrepreneurs access to finance at the early stage where they're just starting out, they need someone to kind of believe in them, help them along a little bit, give them the loan they can afford. Once they pay that back, they can go to a bank and any bank will give them a loan. Um, so that is a, a growing part of our work. And then a significant portion of our work is doing the technical assistance and support pre and post investment support to entrepreneurs to get them through this process, including matchmaking with local banks and helping reschedule their uh, debt payments through COVID, for example. So a good part of our work is also supporting entrepreneurs to get to this point and help them get on the path to success. This has been a really uh, interesting conversation about the 17th SDG. And just one more question for you, Esther, before we let you go. Are you optimistic about the SDGs as a whole? We've uh, On this podcast, we've now gone through all 17 of them. Uh, we've kind of seen uh, many of the challenges that face all of us in getting them accomplished. So what do you think? Are we going to get them done? I'm optimistic. They're ambitious. Uh, in some cases, they're wildly ambitious, but the, the world has to aim high, right? We have to set targets that we are not sure we can achieve because otherwise the ambition's not high enough. We have to feel the urgency of our fellow citizens on this planet who are living in deprivation and poverty. We have to feel that it's an urgent need to move them out of that state and that it's an urgent need to solve the crime climate crisis and adjust to it, and that these massive needs 
that are uh, targeted in the sustainable development goals are also great opportunities to have new businesses that create drones to map the oceans and use technology to, you know, take gas from under the ground and turn it into something else that we can use that's clean. You know, those are really exciting opportunities. And I think without a big, ambitious, very bold target, um, we wouldn't get as far. So even if we don't achieve the SDGs and some countries will not achieve them and no country will achieve all of them, uh, it's likely. But even if we fail, it's a noble failure. It's It's a worthy effort to be trying to aim as high as we can and go as far as we can and make as much progress as we possibly can. Esther, thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, great. And I'm so excited that we started our SDG season with you getting a great kind of um, getting a great description about the SDGs. And now we are concluding with you as well. So thank you for taking us full circle. Thank you so much. And really kudos to you, Liz and Steve, for doing such a tremendous job with your podcast series on the SDGs. I think it's the best one I've heard on the SDGs, and I will certainly tell everyone I know about it. As we wind this SDG season down and look forward towards our weekly coverage, Liz, I wanted to check in with you and kind of debrief what we've gone over the last 17 episodes or so. What was the most surprising thing that you learned or discovered as we talked uh, about the SDGs? So I think there were two impactful things that hit me as kind of a surprise while we were going through these. And the, the first one has to be how interconnected all these issues really are. You know, you have the whole climate change issue, which has such a giant impact on the oceans and the sea, which make up a living for so many people and impact housing, which of course impacts poverty and thus plays into education and diversity and equality. And well, like you get where I'm going with this. Like, it's all just so interconnected. And it really hit me hard how even globally, we cannot do this without the private sector getting involved and helping. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The interconnectedness, I think, was pretty amazing. Um, You know, I think our initial goal for the podcast was to say, hey, we're going to go find social enterprises that are working towards the SDGs. We're going to find ways for retail investors for the everyday investor for the everyday person to get involved and and try and bring some of this to light so we can all move everything forward. So I think what was surprising to me was to be frank how challenging it was to find those companies within each SDG. I know there's many of them out there and you know the fact that so much of what we spoke about kind of had to do with institutional investors or family offices or governmental aid, you know, um, large corporate giving or corporate funds. I think that just struck me that I think there is a opportunity, there's a gap to get retail investors, to get Main Street investors directly involved in ESG and impact. I think you're right, Steve, and maybe that is going to give us some direction for some of the stories that we tell in the coming weeks. You know, now that we don't have such a strict uh, structure on what we're going to be talking about, 
I think maybe I challenge you and you can challenge me to find more stories of how retail investors can make an impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, that's that's a hint for our audience. If you guys out there know of any stories, we always say it at the end of the podcast, but we really mean it. Please send them in. We want to hear about them. We want to tell those stories. We want to get them out to the broader world. So we've got an exciting announcement today, and that is that our annual ESG Film Festival is open for entries. Steve, you have to tell these guys about what the festival is. Yeah, absolutely. So it's basically a a celebration of ESG storytelling. We have short documentary films submitted to us from around the globe, and we have a panel of judges that selects the best eight to 10 of those, and we're going to show them at an event in early December. We are hoping to do this in person. We've done it once in person and once virtually. So hoping for an in-person event, but definitely we'll have a virtual component to this. This is one of the coolest things that we do at Investment News every year. So I hope you will partake and at least watch those virtually with us. And this closes out our SDG season of Impact Adventures. Going forward, we're going to have a weekly conversation with entrepreneurs and ESG experts and other change makers from within the ESG and impact space. We'll check out some newsy topics and take hard looks at happenings like COP26 and the New York City Climate Week. So stay tuned. Season one is done, but this train is rolling along and we'll be back next week with a new episode of Impact Adventures. We'd like to thank our guest, Esther Pan Sloan, for joining us today. And special thanks, as always, to our editor, Angelica Hester, for making us sound intelligible. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple, and leave a review. We love your feedback. We want to know what you like and what you think needs improving. And like we just said, if you know of an impact story that we need to tell, please send it our way. You can find me on Instagram at the Lamco. Liz is at Liz Skinner underscore. Or you can tweet us. Uh, I'm at Slim Slam and Liz is at Skinner Liz. Our email is podcast at investmentnews.com. Please make sure to check out our other podcast series covering topics from women in wealth management to the latest in fintech. And of course, the Investment News Podcast, where our senior writers dig up the latest news from the industry. And remember, life is an adventure. You might as well make an impact.